0: The Bible reading is from Luke 16, verse 13. It's on page 1050 in the Church Bible. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and lose the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my, fa- to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead.
1: Our dear loving Father, just pray for your spirit and presence to be with us here this evening, Lord. We pray that, Lord, we may just be anointed by your word, Lord. We just pray that um, my trembling voice, Lord, may be used by you, Lord, to proclaim your gospel, Lord. And we just pray that our ears may hear your word, Lord, and that we may receive what you have to say to us. Amen. Well, many thanks for having us here. I must say, this is the first time ever I've preached, so do bear with me in that respect. I've never been asked for, so I've never, ref- I've never refused, but this is the first time, and um, it may be the last, I don't know. But anyway. Um, when I was asked to um, lead this, thing, this passage of the rich man and Lazarus came to mind nearly straight away. It is a passage that I... I must admit, um, heard on YouTube some time ago um, with Don Carson speaking. So that's the structure of my message, and it spoke to me then. And as soon as I was giving it, I thought, "That's that's what I'm going to preach on." It's a good narrative, but it's got good meaning as well. So I thought, perhaps I can do, I would say, justice, but handle it. And um, so that's what I'm doing. Um, some people think it's a parable, some think people think it's a, really happened, and that Lazarus and the rich man are still in existence in hell or heaven. I'm not going to enter into that debate, but um, it is what it is. I know Colin um, thinks it's the latter, um, but greater minds of mine have done that. So how am I going to do this evening? Uh, the outline is, I'm going to look at the passage in its context. so I'm going to look at verses behind and in front of this passage just to p- set it in context then I'm going to come to the passage itself and the first part of it is a dialogue of what's happening then the second part of it is um, not a dialogue a, um, a, the narrative shall I say of what's happening and then the second part is a dialogue between Abraham and the rich man and then some concluding thoughts so that's where I'm going so if you want to know how I'm doing <laughs> that's where it is um, yeah so let's look at really the context um, of this. First of all, if we go back to verse 14, that's why I wanted to read the first part um, before this. It says, the Pharisees were lovers of money, were listening to all these things, scoffing at them. And he told them, you are the ones who justifies yourself in the sight of others. So if this has really been spoken to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees at that time were people who thought of themselves as being very important. They were legal people in their world, in their context, and they also had wealth about them as well, and they prided themselves in their wealth. Um, And there's other passages in Scripture that speaks of that. They also tried to justify themselves. He says, you are trying to justify yourselves, and we'll have some other passages in a minute, uh, where they are trying to justify themselves in the sight of men. And that's it. And they got credence for it in men. Um, if we go back to verse 13, it says, No servant can serve two masters, since either you hate the one and love the other. Um, you devote to one love other. You cannot serve both God and money. So this idea of wealth and money comes into it as well. The Pharisees are not only trying to justify themselves, they are... Their wealth, And God says, hang on a minute, you can't have both. It's what you count as important in life. If you're counting money as what you are de God in God. So there is a lot of that that's going on as well in this passage, really, of where do you place the emphasis of what is going on. Um, and if we go back to... Again, setting in context, verse 11. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? Again, this is the aspect of setting up for yourselves treasures in heaven as opposed to this earth. Um, the Pharisees and people were so concerned about what was happening here and now on this earth and were not really concerned about future inheritance herit- in, in the fact our, our, where our um, wealth was. In eternity, yeah, and then if we go back even further into Luke again, Luke 15, this is it says, starting verse 20, and the tax collectors and sinners were approaching him to listen, and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And with that, he starts three parables one after the other one to do with the coins, one to do with lost sheep and then one to do with the two sons. Again, it's talking to the Pharisees and where they saw their importance, but really the whole of that chapter is based on the second son, where they think they've got it all, and they are, are owed all, and he's saying, what you think and what I think are two different things, really. It's where your heart is. The, the second son's heart was really where the he wanted to do what the first son was doing, but he wasn't doing it in a physical form. But um, yeah, and and so the whole and it, and it's to do with wealth and squandering wealth, and so it all comes down to that again. Yeah. And then if we go just forward a, a chapter from this again, it's within the context of what's happening here. Um, Luke eighteen nine to fourteen. This is the parable of the tax, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I think this is quite, I'll read this because, again, we're considering wealth and self-justification. He also said this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee is standing there praying like this about himself. God, I thank that I am not like all the other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I gave a tenth, and everything else. But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went away to his house justified rather than the other one because everyone who... Exalt himself will be humble, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's a bit further on in Luke's story. Then if we go back, really, and I think this is the context of Luke itself, um, to Luke nine fifty one. Um, this is talking about Jesus and what he determined in that sense. When the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. I mean, that's back in Luke 9. And we got to Luke 24, I think it is, before we get to the end of Luke. So there's a whole ethos of what Luke is writing. And let's bear in mind, he, he wrote this quite some time after Jesus was dead and buried. About 20 or 30 years after all that happened. He was setting the whole thing into context of where Jesus was going as a person. His his face, Jesus' face was set towards the cross to Jerusalem, to what had happened there. So in a sense all what we're going to read tonight is 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 based in in that context of everything. Um so that that is this business of justification and um, wealth is all tied up. <coughs> There's a couple of verses just before the rich man allows us, which are, I I want to just Bring out because bearing in mind that that is the situation these look a bit out of place it's talking about the law and the prophets were there until john since the, this is verse 16 um of luke 16 um have been crying everyone is urgent to invite it in but if it's easier in heaven for on earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to drop out Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And everyone who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. I, I mean, that looks a bit out of context to what he's really saying here. And yet, in my thinking and praying over it, I thought, well, perhaps it's not really. Because the Pharisees are trying to self-justify themselves and everything they do. And also, they're the legal beagles of the day, so to speak. And they study law. Now, being clever lawyers, they try to twist it to what they want it to do for them. So, you know, and they say, this is the law. This is what God says. And so that that's how they go about it. And um, the ordinary person in the street doesn't think it. Now, we're going to the area of marriage and remarriage. And I refer to Nathan in his sermon, which was a far better thing than I'm going to do, to... to go into depth into that. But this is just one area, and I think the Pharisees were looking to better themselves for a better prospect, and possibly a more wealthier prospect, so they ditch one and marry another. They wouldn't do it openly um, in relationship outside of marriage, sort of thing. I say marriage in inverted commas, because that would be seen as adultery, which they would certainly cast as a, a sin, and they wouldn't have anything to do with it. But if we use the law to get rid of one lady so we can marry another lady who has better prospects for us and possibly as a wealthier um, person or whatever, better looks or whatever, we, you know, we, we can do that in the form of marriage and therefore it's correct and right. And Jesus is saying, no, you're doing it all for the wrong reasons. There is permitted divorce and thinking, but in this particular case, you're twisting the law to fit your own needs. And so I think that is... Um, where that comes in, and I'm not going to go into de- more details than that, but I think there is a question of self-justification going on there by the Pharisees in that respect as well. So therefore, we come to the narrative, really, and he, he goes, goes in, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. Um, what saw this mean, really, in a sense? Um, and feasted lavishly every day. Well, purple cloth, back in that day, was very, very expensive. How they got the dyes together to make purple cloth. Um, And if you could wear purple clothes, it showed you had wealth about you. And so, he he says, this man had rich. And to emphasise the point, he says, and fine linen. So really, the linen was the undergarments. So what Jesus was saying, not only did this man have expensive clothes to wear, but even his underwear was top-notch as well. I mean, he's sort of emphasising the point of what was going on here in this man. And then he says he feasted lavishly every day. I mean, it, it, it was a lifestyle, basically gorging himself or whatever, fine wines, fine dining. Um, we've sort of seen programmes on TV of where You know, he'd go to the most expensive restaurants and everything, but he had them there. He had the top chefs and everything in his house, and he was able to do all this because he had the money to do it. I'm not saying he gained the money by illegal means or anything like that, but he had money to do it, and he used his wealth to um, just show people how good he was and how wealthy he was. And possibly, and possibly, because of his wealth standard, he was a pillar of the community, in people's eyes we go back to um, verse 15 and 16 verse 15b really for what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight I mean so people would raise him up as being the pillar of community and yet in God's sight was classes with rev- uh, it is revolting in God's sight so it's how God justifies someone as opposed to we just self-justifying ourselves in all that respect, so so that was there. So he find one, and then in verse twenty it says, "But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate." Now, first of all, isn't it interesting that only Lazarus is mentioned by name, which is quite important in Jesus telling us this this parable story. It's quite important. Names were important in them days and yet the rich man is just classed as a rich man and not named. And yet Lazarus was named. And what does Lazarus mean? Lazarus means the one who God helps. Well, let's just think about it for a moment. He was a poor man, covered in sores, lying at his gate. I mean, is this the one, how God helps people? Um, you know, it's you'd think there's a, something wrong there until you look at the end of the story. But here he is classed in this life, in a sense, as the one who God helps, and people just look on him and say, Well, if that's how God helps someone, I don't want anything to do with it. Um, but he, he was one of us. So we go going to verse, he was covered in sores. Well, the sores were more like to be. Bed sores or something like that. I mean, they would stink and be horrid. They're not just thinking. And he was lying at his gate. The fact that he was lying there, he couldn't sit up. He couldn't think. He, he would be brought there every day. His friends or family would have bring him. So he's been transported. He couldn't and think. He was he, in a sense, he could say he was disabled and he's a cripple in that respect as well. And he's lying at, at his gate. Well just another emphasis of where this rich man was he lived in a gate well gated community but perhaps his own place was a gate place so you just couldn't walk into it it wasn't just an ordinary house it was a maybe a bit of a mansion going on there and he says he longed to be filled from what was fell from the rich man's table but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores i mean there's an emphasis there that the Bloke was hungry, starving. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table. Jesus met a Phoenician woman earlier on at some other time, and she said even um, dogs can eat the crumbs off the table. And he was using that as a matter of faith in that woman's life. She wanted healing. But this just emphasised the fact that um, the rich man just ignored him, wouldn't do anything to help him. I mean... We've got to think of the fact that um, he was expected to help him because in them days, the poor and the beggars and that sort of thing, especially someone like him in his disabled condition, would be left near the rich man's home so he could throw tidbits at him. There was no Social Security or anything like that, but it was his duty to do and help him and possibly throw him a crumb or two or a cluster two and things like that. But it's obvious he ignored him. And that's I mean, we could go to the um, Good Samaritan, and again, that's a, another legal beagle going to Jesus, trying to trip him up, and he says, you know, the Good Samaritan, who is he? Well, if we could go to it, it's Luke 10. Um, it's, it says, what is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and all your mind, and your neighbour as yourself. He said, you answered the question, do this and you'll live. But he wanted to justify himself and he asked Jesus, who is my neighbour? Goes on to tell the story of the Good Samaritan. So there again, someone, an expert of the law he was, um, wanted to justify himself before God, before Jesus. And Jesus talked about helping, you know, those in need basically. So here is this rich man, not even helping um, this guy that was in need. Yeah, and he was longing for food. He wasn't begging for food, which again I think is interesting when you come to later on the story. But he was longing for food, and the food he was longing for was that of the dogs. And when you think of it, that's the scraps off the table. So basically, he was wanting the stuff that you throw out and put in your rubbish bin, in your waste and thingy. That's what he was really longing for to eat. you know, not not a bit of um, choice meat, but he's longing for the scraps, the off-cuts, the stuff that was going off. Um, and he'd be raiding the rubbish bin if he could do. But the dogs were it, isn't it? And he says, but even, he says, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. So he got some comfort from the dogs licking his sores. I mean, he was in such a bad state, wasn't he? And that's another thing about the rich man. The dogs, the rich man 's dogs now they wouldn 't be what we have these days where your little rescue dog <laughs> that you love and cuddle and carry around with you, which people do these days. Um, these were really working dogs or guard dogs, um, think of rock or a bit more than that, really. they were guarding the missing man 's homes, so and no wealth and stray would dare enter his home, you know, but the dogs were taking sympathy on it on this. Poor man Lazarus, as he lay there, um, and you know waiting, and then it goes on. It says, "One day, the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. One day, you know, there's coming a day when you will die, and it happened with this rich this um, Lazarus as well." and the rich man, he says one day he died it wasn't the end of the story but one day he moved into eternity and the poor man, no sign of mention of burial, he may have been dumped in the local rubbish dump in them days no sign of burial there, he says but the poor man was carried away by angels to Abraham's side I think that needs a little explanation really we may see it as a comfort. But I think if we go to um, John chapter 13, it may give us a little bit more insight into what's going on here. This is a cultural thing really, um, in our thinking. I mean, I'm just thinking, um, we're quite reserved being English people and we shake people by the hands when we meet and that sort of thing. my sister Helen went to Bangladesh as, a, as a, just after she left college to work in hospital there, and she said it would be nothing to see—men walking down the streets holding hands. But that was not to mean what it would be saying of Brighton, but that's how they operated—is their culture. Um, and I know um, we nearly went to Pakistan once, and um, I mentioned my wife here, but when we to pa- we was told that she'd have to walk about three paces behind me, <laughs> which would please her. But it. it what I'm saying is the cultural thing and here I think it's the cultural thing it's a banquet going on really and if we read what happened at the Last Supper um, verse 21 of John 13 when Jesus said this he was troubled in spirit and testified truly I tell you one of you will betray me the disciples started looking at one another uncertain as to which one he was speaking about one of his disciples the one who Jesus loved, which would be John the Apostle, the one who Jesus was reaching, um, Lord was reclining close by Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to him, find out who it is, who he's talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, who is it? So how they're having this meal, they're basically sitting, lying like that one arm, eating away Um, around the table. John's here. Jesus is here. Peter's over there somewhere. So he says, Jesus said something about someone betraying him. So they start saying, what's going on here? What's going on here? So you see, Peter across the table goes, John, John, you you know, ask him. So he leans back. That's what they do. He leans back against Jesus Christ. He says, "Um, Lord, who, who is it? So that's when he says he rested on Jesus Rest. And so here is this picture of Lazarus dining next to Abraham. Leaning back. Um, so he's, you know, he's in the best-seated house, as it were. Um, so he, he, that's where he is, dining. Um, and then we talk, go back to the rich man. He says, "I'm being in torment... Oh, the rich man was also died and was buried. So chances are, because his class he's buried, he might be a, um, quite a, a well-to-do funeral. Local dignitaries that said some nice things about him and what he'd done and all the rest of it and what a good man he was and, and what have you. And he was buried um, in his um, proper tomb and everything. But he died. And being in torment in Hades, that's where he found himself. He, he looked up and saw Abraham along off with Lazarus at his side. So there he was in torment in Hades. And really that's where um, the first narrative part of it ends. Lazarus is in paradise or heaven, banqueting next to Abraham. The rich man now is in hell, basically, in torment. Like, along, um, looking, you know what to do, and he's in agony. He's in agony, it says. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abram, he called out. That's a bit ironic in a sense. He is a Jew. Um, where where have I got to on on this uh, he says Father Abraham he says I think first of all it's quite striking what he doesn't say he's finding himself in torment in hell Wouldn't you think he'd say, "So, boy, I got that one wrong." <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm in. <laughs> in. oh, oh, Lazarus, I'm so sorry. Please, would you forgive me? You know, God, please forgive me. Please help me. No, he doesn't say anything like that. He accepts his fate. First of all, he doesn't complain. In one sense, about where, it, why he's there. Justice has been served. And justice has been done. And he's in hell. He's in Hades. And that's where he is. But he's still self-centered in his approach. There's pride there. So when he says, Father Abraham, he called, have mercy on me, he's thinking of himself. He's thinking of himself. Still thinking of himself. He's not thinking that he's done it wrong. He's still thinking of himself. He calls out Father Abraham. I think it's quite interesting, that is. In fact, if we look at Matthew 3 7 and 10, this is going back to John the Baptist now. Um, and when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of the vipers, who w- warned you to flee from the wrath coming, therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have father as Abraham as our father. For I tell you, that God is able to raise up children um, for Abraham from these stones. So they claim that Abraham was his father, which genetically he would be. But there's more to being Abraham's children than being genetically spiritual as well. Um, Which we can see back in Romans, and what um, Paul says about that. So he says, Father Abraham... Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I'm in agony. So there's no sign of repentance here. He's not even speaking to Lazarus, who he can see. He's speaking to Abraham. And so it's beneath him to to speak to Lazarus, because he's only a a pleb and a um, non-entity in his mind. But he wants him to run an errand for him to... Um, tip his finger so he can cool his tongue he wants him you know um, it, it, it's still beneath him what's going on here he, he, he's got no and he's still self-centered about what he's saying about it and he's demanding services from Lazarus who he would never even give him food out of his rubbish bin too. I mean, that's where the situation we've got to really. He wants Lazarus now to run around and look after him when he wouldn't even give him his food out of his rubbish bin. Verse 25. Son, that's a bit ironic really, I think, from Abraham's point of view. Son, Abraham said, remember... During your life you received good things, just as uh, Lazarus received bad things. I think the word remember is quite torturous in itself. You're sitting there in hell, and Jesus is saying to him, or Abraham is saying to him, remember your life, what went on, when you heard things, and people said things to you, or whatever. And, you, you know, the message was given and you refused it. Remember? Remember all that? Remember during your life you received good things in a sense of, you know, your wealth and your thingy. Just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here while you are in agony. And he goes on, he says, besides, there's a great chasm here fixed between us and you. So that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those Cross over to from here to there. It's quite a, a telling thing in that sense. Um, it's a, but he's begging him that it for no, not there. No, he's it. He, um, he's wanting Lazarus to come to him, and he says, No, but also, there's fixed a divide, eternity is fixed. Um, now this might be where it breaks down whether it's reality or whether it's a parable but he's actually seeing into heaven from where he is or seeing Abraham and Lazarus but he's saying there's a great rift here you cannot, you are where you are now justice has been done you cannot pass over to the other side um, so there's no sense of purgatory or anything like that or we can go to another place for a short time or whatever, it's fixed Time is fixed. You are where you are. And, and Lazarus is where he is beside him. And he says, not only is it fixed between you and me, but it's also fixed between me and you. It's like both ways. I mean, you could say that Lazarus is sort of tugging at table. He said, I'll, I'll go and give him some water. And he says, no, it's fixed. We can't go from one to the other. Everything's fixed. Um, yeah. so then in verse 27 he says father he says I beg you to send him to my father's house because our five brothers to warn them so that they won't also come to this place of torment he's begging he's begging Abraham now still no sign of any repentance which is um, quite interesting in that sense Still thinking of himself. He says, I beg. I have. Pride is number one. Still. In that respect. Um In hell, you'll have no friends. Because pride will be number one. You are self-centered. You will think you're in charge when you're not. So, if you think you're number one. Don't get any friends. Um So, in, in a sense, it... He has concern for his brothers, but that's because of his situation, not because of his brother's situation, because he'll just heap coals, in a sense, onto him and where he is. So what else is happening here? He wants Lazarus now to be an errand boy and to go back to his father's house, to his brother's house. He's, he's, <laughs> this, he's still in charge. He still wants to be the boss. He says, God, just, just send him and tell him what's going on. You know, if, if it, you know that sort of thing, um, and what's Abraham's answer? He says, um, he says, but Abraham said to him, "They have Moses and the prophets; they should listen to them." We would say, the Bible. I think if we go back to verse sixteen. It says the law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom has been proclaimed and everyone is urgently invited to enter it. So it's referring back to really that when John the Baptist came there was a change in divine revelation so to speak. And we have the New Testament as well. So let's say Moses and the prophets is the Bible. And all the canon of scriptures we believe it. He says Although I just had the Old Testament, he says, they've got to read. As long as they read that and understand it, there's no need for anyone to go back. You know? No! No, Father Abram, you got it wrong, he says. He says, no. He says, but if someone, now if someone, now not Lazarus, he wants anyone now, if someone wants to go from the dead, they will repent, he thinks. He's been really dogmatic now. He's questioning Abraham's theology. He's trying to correct him what he thinks. Self centered pride. Still there. No repentance. That's hell. He's in torment. No sign of forgiveness. No sign of wanting to be forgiven. But everyone says to no, If they don't listen to most of the prophets. They will not be persuaded. Even if someone rises from the dead. And that's. The key of it really. Luke wrote this. Possibly 30 years after Jesus. Did rise from the dead. So someone has risen from the dead. Is everyone a Christian? No. They didn't listen to him. But he's left the Bible for us. We also have another Lazarus, John eleven. I won't go into time's going. But when he rose from the dead, again, the scribes and Pharisees, what did they do? They wanted to plot to kill Jesus. That was the outcome of the other Lazarus rising from the dead. They didn't see wow. Some believed, some did believe, but really the Pharisees, those whose hearts were against Jesus, said, Hey, hang on a minute, he's doing other things now. We've got to get rid of him as soon as possible. And so their hearts were set against him. So, conclusions of what's going on here, or what this is about. I've got four, as quick as I can. First one there is a heaven. And there is a hell. That's what he talks about. Jesus speaks of hell more times than he speaks of heaven. So that's um, what it is really, in a sense. There's a place to be gained and a place to be avoided. Um, pictorial language, a lot of it in the New Testament, of what heaven and hell is like. Hell is a place of torment, we just read that. There's no love, pride, it's all self-centred. Um, hellfire and primstone, we have. I'll read this from Revelation. Um, this is another pictorial thing of what's going on. And he says, then I saw, Revelation 20, then I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it, earth and heaven fled from his presence, Interested, And no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, great and small, standing there before the throne, and books were opened. And it goes on. And it says, And each one of them was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the he- lake of fire. This is where the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. So that's the Outcome of those who will not bow the knee before God. And going on in chapter 21. Very good for our climate people. But anyway, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And he goes, I saw a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven. God prepared like a bride to adorn her husband. So it goes on to describe the future for the Christian. In a sense, and there's a lot of illustrations um, describing heaven in that respect. Um, We go back to our chapter, verse 11. If you had not been faithful to worldly things, who will trust you with what is genuine? We're going to be dealing in riches in heaven, if we take that as an understanding, that verse. Wealth beyond the parable of the talents. I don't know if you really studied that one about the five and three and one. Talents is a weight of gold, substantial weight of gold. And he gave them, and when it comes to the end of it, he, he gave them to, he says, You'll be, you've been faithful in little, which is ironic in a sense. Now you'll be faithful in much. So when we pass into, there'll be a great wealth too and jobs to do, and things like that. Um, yeah, so it, 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 it's also classed paradise, which is a pleasured wall garden. There'll be love there. I mean, there's no love in hell, but in heaven, there's love. So, And we recognize people. I, mean, I you know, go back to transfiguration. They recognize Moses and Elijah. Well, when they get to heaven, we'll see Moses and Elijah. We'll recognize them. I know we've never seen them now and we don't even know what they look like but when we get to heaven we'll recognise who they are and all the people. You know, it's, it's a phenomenal thing. Second point of conclusion, Lazarus. The phrase, the one who God helps. I thought that's really looking here and now in a sense. And you shouldn't dismiss prayer, and I don't want to dismiss prayer because prayer is very important in a Christian life. But I think sometimes we should live our lives in the light of eternity, in that sense. And our prayers should be prayed in the light of eternity as well. So often we pray for somebody who's got terminal cancer, maybe only given a fortnight to live, and we're asking God to heal them and all that sort Yes, I suppose you could heal them and everything. But they, they died. Does that mean to say it's an unanswered prayer? Really, we should be praying for people's souls. So when they get to eternity, they're by Abraham's side. Um, and then they are healed. Lazarus was a cripple, full of sores. When he got to Abraham's side, he was comforted. So, you know... My dear Josh, i hope please listen. He'll be walking around praising God when you get to eternity. Each one of us will have a different life. Also, another point is this business of self-justification. The things that we take pride in in this life blinds us to the grace of God. I think that's the core of it really. Things that we would deem as being good things. Going back to this verse again. It says, You justify yourselves in the sight of men, others, but God knows your hearts for what is highly deemed by people is revolting in God's sight. Self-justification. You're not saying things themselves are bad in a sense. So wealth, I don't think wealth is bad in a sense, as long as you choose wisely. Jobs, career prospects, Good looks, good marriage, good family. They're all good things in one sense. But I think the point is if they blind us and get in the way of our appreciation of God, we've already read that verse from Luke where it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's where we've got to concentrate on because if things get in the way of that, then they are replacing God as being the one first commandment broken. Therefore, we're de-godding God, and therefore, um, you know, we're slipping. And this is what the Pharisees were doing. They were twisting everything around because they realized in this life, lots of money, lots of wealth, lots of prestige, is what we really want. And they forgot to know what happened in the afterlife for where your treasure is there will your heart be also that's Luke 12 34 and lastly God did not leave himself without a witness by that I mean his word the Bible it's a fully eyewitness account there's a lot of people can tell you about this Stephen could give you a, an old evening on the eyewitness accounts and how good it is. People have tried to pick this to pieces over the centuries and they still haven't succeeded. It is what it is. I'm going to read about three verses here, which I think is doom Acts one eight. And Jesus, this is Jesus speaking to them. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the periods of the Father as set by his own authority but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. John 21 verse 24 This is the end of John's Gospel. This is the disciple, i.e. John, who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Again, a witness. On one of my favourite ones of recent times, if anyone's been listening to me, rabbiting on, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8. This is Paul writing. The Apostle Paul he was converted about two years after Jesus' crucifixion. So this would be written well, five years after that, possibly. I don't know. In know, Corinthians. So he's writing this testimony, really. And now I want you to make clear to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, for which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believe, pre- believed in vain. For I pass on to you as first importance what I also receive. So that's Paul being taught something early on. That's within two years. So it's these months really after Jesus died. Now when we talk about early eyewitness accounts historically, which Stephen could go on (laughs) long with, this is months after Jesus. This this, um, creed in a sense. He says, for I pass on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's his own brother, and then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one out of all, bunked time. Long time he also appeared to me they're early eyewitnesses of what's gone on so you don't need anyone rising from the dead so we have he has not left us without witness if we're prepared to listen where your heart is there will be your treasure listen and understand the bible is greater than any vision that we can receive It's certainly greater than any statues that people worship or bow down to. It's greater than any miracle that we can see. It's greater than any religious ritual. Look at Psalm 51 for that. It's greater than anyone coming back from the dead to tell you about what is ahead of you. It is the word, the Bible. Read it, understand it, and listen to it. Amen. So We just pray. Our dear loving Father, we just pray that we may have open minds and hearts to listen to your word and to how we receive it, Lord, and understand it, and that we be able to bow our knees before you. Lord, we just pray that in all these things we may be truly found in your presence in the coming days. Amen.